Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. Bertrand Hervier, bonjour, and and welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. I just want to first... uh, Talk a little bit about about you. You are a filmmaker, a film historian, uh, the president of the Institut Lumière uh, at, in Lyon. But I think, au fond, at the very base, what you are is a, a lover of movies. Yes. It, it shows through your work. It shows through your conversations. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the very first film that you saw and the impression it made upon you? Yes, yes. Um, and I mention it in my film... Uh, my personal journey through the French cinema. C'est ma voyage à, à travers de la film français. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, um, when I was, uh, I think, six, I was sent to, um, to what we call the sanatorium because I had um, TB. Um, in those times, the doctor did not say it was TB. They said it was primo infection, which was a word invented not to, to avoid frightening the, the families. Oh, just to establish a time frame without, uh, without divulging your age, this is yes. sometime in the 40s. Yes, yes, that's, that was just after the, the war, like something that when you, we could at least travel. So I don't know exactly the date, but it, was, it must have been something like 40, 46 or something like that. And I was then so sent to that establishment to, for a certain number of months, and they were showing films on Sundays. And I remember very clearly the first scene I remember was um, some uh, cops on motorcycle chasing a car um, which was driven by some gangsters. It was a French film. And the cops were guessing where the people would go. They said there are two roads. There is the road of the tunnel and there is the mountain road. Which road are we going to take? And I I remember, I clearly remember the line. I clearly remember the scene. And it took me like um, 30 years to discover what was the film. It was Dernier Atout. It was the first film directed by Jacques Becker. Jacques Becker became one of my favorite directors, somebody which I admire tremendously, who made two or three of the French films which I absolutely love, love which are in my pantheon. And uh, so at six, (laughs) the first film I picked up was... Was done by a very good director, which is which is a rather a sign of good taste. I mean, well, uh, you're speaking of Jacques Becker uh, yesterday, and and for me uh, on on the on the internet, I've just rewatched for I don't know the third or fourth time Touche pas au Grisby uh, yeah. with uh, with Jean Gabin, who is a centerpiece uh, yeah. of your film, your journey into French movies. He, yeah. he occupies. We talk about the pantheon. He may be at the very top of that pantheon for you. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, Jean Gabin, and in, and in Touche par Grisby, Becker did something 
um, very, very modern and very rare at that time. In those years, Gabin was a seducer, was somebody who was a hero. And in the film, he plays a gangster who is grumpy, who wants to go to bed early, who prefers uh, uh, food that to uh, going late in the uh, in, in the cafe or the or the cabaret, uh, who wants to be alone. Uh, uh, it's rather a kind of anti-hero <laughs> before before. It was the fashion to have Ontario. It was something incredibly, it was the opposite, because in most American films, the gangster is a hero, is a seducer. Even if he's a, a killer, sadistic, he must have a lot of energy. Here, Gabin want, is forced to fight, but he doesn't want to do anything. And, if, and, and when Jeanne Moreau... Um, ask him uh, if she can go with him and, and they can... Maybe he says, no, I want to go to... It's too late. I want to go to, to bed now. Which is... That was the opposite of Gabin's image. Gabin was uh, somebody who was seducing, who was... Uh, and I think that was, that was very brave and very intelligent from Becker and very, very new at that time. And not many people have remarked that... Uh, that they, they talk of Touche as if it was a traditional gangster's film, which is not. It's not. Well, also, in, in terms of Gabin, for me, he is always a Pepe Lomoco when yeah, I think yeah. of uh, Gabin. Oh, but he's so many people. He's in La Grande Illusion. Oh, magnifique. He's in La Grande Il La Bête Humaine. He's in so many films. And even in the films of the 50s, there was many, many very good films. In La Vérité sur Bébé Donge, he's terrific. And his, uh, his, uh, his character is a macho, is horrible with his wife, is unfaithful, and, and, and he, he accepted that. And Gabin, uh, before the war, uh, uh, because... Uh, after the film, I had many, many questions of people. He says, why did you uh, speak so, uh, so much of Gabin? You did not take any actress. There was some, uh, in those years, there were some tremendous French actress, among them, Daniel Darieux, who, like Gabin, was, I think she never made a wrong note. She was like Charlie Parker. I mean, Charlie Parker never did the wrong note in all his life. He was never off key. I mean, Dario was never. You can, but there was a difference. Dario never initiated any project. She was given script. She accepted or refused. And when she was, she accepted the one she accepted. Uh, she was. Astonishing. Gabin, before the war, helped a tremendous number of films. He bought the, with, with Duvivier the rights of La Bandera. He helped producing La Grande Illusion. He bought the book Gueule d'Amour, which uh, was made into a marvelous film by Jean Grémillon. So he, he initiated at least six or seven films. And even after the war, he co-produced films. And, 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 and one of his last, Le Chat, 
which is a very tough and, and, and very brave film with Simon Signore, Gabin is co-producing it. Uh, so that's the difference, uh, that nobody else was doing that before the war. Nobody was, um, did so much for directors like Renoir, Duvivier, Marcel Carnet, and many others. So it's why, and, he en and during the war, he enlisted in the French army. And he, he, he enlisted, he became, a, he, he left Hollywood, universal, uh, force him to um, to to pay for buying back his contract, and since that, he never he never he refused to go back to United States. Well, I think you know he reminds me in some degree of uh, of Bogart, at least the Bogart that we know on screen. And you yeah. allude to Jacques Becker and uh, Touche, which is 1954, and Le Chat, which was a remarkable film based on Simonon's yeah. novel. It, it seems at that point there were two Gabin. There's the Gabin that we know from our youth and his youth, and, and this, uh, this older, more experienced, uh, you know, his face, you can see that he's lived. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot of life in that. Uh, and accepted that role of becoming uh, somewhat of a character actor yeah. uh, as he had gone forward. So I, I, I agree, he was an astonishing yeah. and figure. I think, I think Gabin has an influence, maybe on, but I think on John Garfield. Ah. I think uh, uh, he was, in the French cinema, he was one of the first proletarian heroes. He, uh, he, he, he was playing workers. He was playing people of, uh, uh, not of the middle class, I mean, uh, below that. And, and uh, he, he, he accepted to play a deserter in Quai des Brumes. He was uh, somebody who seemed to be close to the popular front. He was like that. And the Gabin I met, and I met him several times, he had so one thing which was unique. His language, his choice of words, was stunning. I mean, he was speaking one of the most colorful, um, slangy uh, uh, French, but with incredible, beautiful expression, unique. I mean, I think he was, the way he was speaking was a source of inspiration for uh, a, a French screenplay writer called Michel Audiard. Michel Audiard took a lot. Uh, 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 he took even from Gabin, he lifted from Gabin the title of one of his films, Le Drapeau Noir, Flotte sur la Marmite. The black flag is floating over the, the how do you say, the pot, the, 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 food, the food pot, which was an expression meaning that you had nothing to eat. That uh, so the black flag is over, uh, and and uh, that was an expression of Gamin when he said he was he had no money. He says the black flag is floating over, the, uh, and he was uh, he, he he had some some insight on in one line he could describe a, a, a director. He said, "I learn." Uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, in the cinema, I learned everything from Julien Duvivier. Everything in terms of technique, 
of the relationship with the, the camera, the angle, the light. I learned. And with Renoir, I learned ev everything about acting. About acting. And he said uh, uh, that was, uh, uh, he said, uh, in fact, the ideal director, the total ideal director, would be a combination of Renoir and Duvivier. I mean, the tremendous technical genius of Duvivier and the warmth, but sometimes the, the anarchistic, not uh, 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 warmth of Renoir, we, we could be sometimes lost uh, in the technique, and, but had a, a great, uh, but he never forgave in himself. Even if Gabin, in his old age, as many people, became conservative, uh, he never for, really forgave Renoir to have supported uh, the Maréchal Pétain in 1940. He never forgave him, even if it was during a few months. And he always told me, and I quote that in the film, and it shocked many people, but that's the truth, and it doesn't take anything, it doesn't, um, it doesn't diminish the genius of Renoir as a director, but he says, as a filmmaker, Renoir was a genius. As a human being, he was a ham, a hack, a ham, a ham, a ham. No, ham is a word. No. Oh, ham is like an actor that's overacting. Uh, yeah, a ham. He was yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned to me in a, in a conversation a couple of years ago that there was a little touch of anti-Semitism in Renoir. I know there was in his yes, father. Yes, yes, yes. And, and this uh, so offended uh, Gabin that though they had been friends for many, many years, he never spoke to him again. No, uh, uh, yeah, um, Gabin uh, was never, never, he supported, uh, for instance, Gabin, when he was making a film in Germany in 1933 or 4 called The Tunnel, the director, Kurt Bernhardt, who became in America Curtis Bernhardt, uh, was a Jew, and the Gestapo was coming to questioning, and each time the Gestapo was coming on the set, Gabin was calling the French consul or the French ambassador, and he was preventing Bernard to be, uh, uh, to be arrested. And in his autobiography, Bernard said, Jean Gabin saved my life. Yeah, Gabin to me is what we used to call in Brooklyn when I grew up a stand-up guy. Yeah, absolutely. A guy you definitely want on your side. Yeah. I want to segue a little bit uh, before you put together this particular documentary, Trente ans de le cinéma, à travers de le cinéma français, uh, you wrote Trente et après 50 ans de le cinéma américain with a collaborator, yeah. a, yeah. a, a co-writer, let's use a better word than collaborator. And uh, talk about your, your, your passion for American films, and was this a result, like many in the Nouvelle Vague, who had not seen uh, John Ford or Howard Hawks until after the war, who were just suddenly blown away by the the difference in filmmaking there and here? No, my passion for the American cinema was genuine. It came out of watching in my, in my very early childhood films with uh, John Wayne, uh, Gary Cooper, Henry Fonda. I mean, uh, actors who I really loved. I think that um, Cooper, Gary Cooper became my hero. And I always said the kind of jokes that uh, I wanted to become a director with the hope of meeting one day Gary Cooper. Uh, 
that was not. But there was something else. I was, um, uh, I was, I think at 12, I was struck by some John Ford film, and it was the first time that I, I, I suddenly realized watching she wore a yellow ribbon and for Apache that there was a community between those two films. There was the same kind of images, the same love for landscape, for the skies, for also for the collectivity, the, that the collectivity was stronger than the, the, uh, the hero, the, the individual. Something later on, which I discovered uh, that is rather rare in the American cinema. I mean, there is a, a sense of the collectivity in Ford. And I was in a very naive and uh, maybe um, uh, not not uh, intellectual way, I sense that those films had roots, they, that they were talking about America. They were, uh, <clears throat> they were, they had something which, and, and I felt that suddenly I, I realized that you could write with images the same way that uh, people like Robert Louis Stevenson or Jack London were, or Jules Verne, were, were writing with words. Then you could find, I was finding similarities in the books of Jules Verne between the same kind of hero, the same kind of passion for science. And, and I was finding the same thing in the, in the film of Ford, then of William Wellman, of, uh, uh, and, and after two or three years in the film of Renoir and Becker. And so, but my... I, I, we decided to write about the American cinema also because it was a time after the war where the American cinema was um, not well regarded in France. There was still the kind of uh, domination of the... Uh, of the people influenced by the, the communists. So, so the, Hollywood was a kind of capitalist world. And, um, and uh, the many, many American films were discarded as just entertainment, sometimes very slick, very well done, but just uh, uh, something without any kind of meaning. And we, we were thinking, uh, grand people first, the people of uh, like Truffaut and um, and Chabrol who uh, wrote about Hoax and Hitchcock, and and said that they were not just people making um, entertainment, but they were making in fact films with a substance, with a meaning, with that. And then we 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 followed that. And we wanted to, to discover the world of uh, people like uh, Preminger, like Raoul Walsh, of Jacques Tourneur. And, uh, and so, so I wrote, um, but I, it was never an exclusive love. I was also loving the French films. I was loving the, the, the British film, the Italian films. 
uh, when I was going to the Cinémathèque, I was, I was there when there was the first uh, um, retrospective of the Japanese cinema. So, uh, and seeing the Mizoguchi, the film of Konishikawa, all the films that... So it was never uh, something, I would say, uh, narrow. Uh, um, well, you're an indiscriminate lover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the films were... But very few people were writing about American films. So for a young guy, uh, uh, that was a great opportunity. There was a, there was a window. There was a space to occupy. Unfortunately, the book is only available in, in, in French, which is fine for us. Is, yeah, ever, yeah. is it ever going to be published in, in American? That's, uh, uh, I cannot be blamed on that. This is a talk to the, the American publisher. That's not my fault. And I published uh, 50 years, and then uh, I think in a few months, 100 years of American cinema. Mm. And Ami American, I published two editions, three editions of Ami American, which collects all the interviews I did with from from John Ford to Robert Altman, all the people, from Henry Attaway to Jacques Tourneur, from Stanley Donen to Robert Parrish, plus um, many, many pages about the blacklist. Ah. Uh, uh, well, but, you know, it, it may very I, I Hopefully we'll find an American publisher for that because, the uh, as my listeners may not be aware, before you became a, uh, a filmmaker, you were a film critic, uh, yeah, yeah, but, uh, but, but, for... but, but Terence, Terence, yes. let's be clear. Um, I sometimes become a little worried that people are always mentioning that when for me that was not the reason why I wanted to do uh, to, to, to work uh, in the film industry. Uh, the, the reason was I, I am first a filmmaker. Okay. I am uh, the, the the most important thing are my films for me. My life is my films, and after that, as a kind of uh, uh, something after that, when I have uh, some little time, I do that. But I am a filmmaker. I am not a critic. I never was a critic. I did okay. that. I did that. I had to do that because I had to to earn some money. At a time I needed to to, to so I wrote. I wrote film Some of them good. Some of them I did. I wrote some stupid things also. Well, this makes a perfect segue uh, to be with your very first film, Olaje de Saint Paul, uh, adapted from a, uh, a Simonon novel, and your first collaboration with the, the great talent Philippe Noiret. Yeah. Talk about yeah. that film. How it came together. Uh, obviously, your love for uh, Lyon, which is vivid in the in the film and many later films, and and the great Philippe Noiret, what made uh, him such it, a phenomenal it, it, character. It was a combination of several loves. First, my love for Simon, which I consider the the greatest one of the greatest novelists, incredibly, uh, I, I would say, sharp, incisive. Uh, it gets into the human soul uh, in a, with very few words, very economical, very, very economical. You know, uh, the, um, when you read some, the beginning of novels is something which is very interesting. And, and Simon starts one of his novels, La Veuve Coudère, by one sentence. He walked. 
And I think this is, <laughs> this is typical of, of you know, Il Marche. Or he was walking, maybe. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, I mean, uh, you cannot imagine a beginning more economical, more uh, dense, <laughs> and at the same time, with two words in French, you have a feeling of loneliness, you have a feeling of somebody who is uh, not belonging to a community, and it gets that. I mean, that's the art of Simon. Reminds so me a little that bit. Was, that was the law for Simon. The only thing, the novel of Simon was taking place in America. I decided to put it in my native city. So the other second love was my love for Lyon. And then there was people who I, I really love who helped me. The screenwriters Orange and Bost, which I took contrary, which uh, something which was written and which was incredibly stupid and dub. I did not choose them to fight against a new wave. I chose them because they were good. I mean, you never, I mean, a film takes, and it took two years of my life. You are not going to pick uh, the, some of the most important collaborators just to say, uh, uh, fuck the new wave. I mean, if, if you I want to criticize the new wave, I would, I would do an, uh, 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 an article. Uh, but never, never put my life, uh, because the film is my life, uh, uh, at, uh, by, by in, in, in the choice of people who are going to, to help me do, doing that film. Um, and um, so, so Orange and Boss, I had so watched all their films, all film, and I saw that they had the dialogue was never old fashioned, and when there was some problems in the films, most of the time it was not them, it was the directors, uh, uh, which was a bad choice of the camera angle or uh, some bit player with overacting or something like that. But it was not their fault. So, so I, I picked up Orange and Boss, and then I thought that I was doing my first film, and I, I was needing people who would be with me all the time. I, if I had chose, chosen some fashionable screenwriters that, um, uh, let's say, the people who, who were Odiar, uh, Dabadi, uh, and the people who were doing many, many films at the time, um, they were doing three films a year. I, uh, uh, first, maybe they would have hesitated uh, doing a first film, and then I would maybe they would have helped me for uh, two months, and then went. Um, so Orange, Orange and Boss stood with me for two years, and I could write many versions of the screenplay. That, in fact, I did the same thing than Otto Preminger when he picked up some blacklisted writer to. 
<laughs> Dalton Trumbo. To, because he knew that Dalton Trumbo would give all his energy on a firm like uh, Exodus, because that was, and then Spartacus, uh, because that was a big chance for him. That was something where maybe, and Preminger was the first to impose his name on us. So I did the same thing. Like, uh, the same thing, it's a good idea, because in a way, Orange and Bot were like blacklisted writers. They were been so much attacked by the new wave that nobody wanted to work with them. So they were with me. So, and my third love was, of course, Philippe Noiré. Well, before we come back to Philippe, which I want to talk to, yes. uh, going back to Orange, uh, you also made a film called Laissez Passer, which talked about continental films, yeah. which will be the subject of, a, a hopefully in the future, another long discussion. Yeah. Uh, but Orange and Bost were uh, principals in, in, at that film. Talk briefly about that, and let's come back to Philippe. I mean, I mean uh, to Laissez Passer, yeah. I wanted to do a film about the occupation. And, I, uh, and by accident, I, I met a director called Jean de Vevre, uh, which had done a very, very good film called La Ferme des Sept Péchés, and, and a very good film called La Dame d'Onzeur. And I met Jean de Vevre, and Jean de Vevre told me that he had worked at the Continental. He never wanted to do that because he was somebody who is a nationalist, more, more right-wing than nationalist, who he told me the day of the armistice, he buried his gun and his grenade. So I, I told him, I said, you were the first resistant. <laughs> because at that time, De Gaulle had not done his, his speech on the left. So immediately, the Vev decided to resist and, and with, with weapons. So he buried his grenade, his guns, and that, his munition. And uh, uh, De Vev worked at the Continental. He was called by Jean-Paul Le Chanois, who was a communist. And we told him, if you work at the Continental with a German company, uh, first the firm avoid the censorship of Vichy. Then uh, the, you have a safe conduct. And then the German, the French police cannot investigate, investigate the people of the Continental. So that gives you, and he says, the best place when you are fighting against a wolf is to be inside his, his mouth. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so, uh, but uh, he told me so many stories. I said, I would love to show that the people who work for this uh, German company were not collaborators. They were people who tried to, to pass messages to, to um, and, but it was difficult because he was just a first AD. And I thought suddenly of Orange, who had written a few films during that period and refused to work for the Continental. And I said, okay, I have two characters, Orange, and his partner, Bost, who are the writers, who can never go on the set, but they are providing the screenplay, and they arrange all the films he did, with, with or without Bost, were against the Vichy ideology. There were, two of the films were about class struggle, 
those films were very feminist in a moment, uh, one of the most uh, fanatically anti-feminist government. They, they were never, they were uh, really fighting for social values and for humanistic values. Um, so uh, I said, if I can combine the, 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 the story of Orange, of the screenwriter and the, the assistant director, I can have a kind of, of portrait of what was the filmmaking du during one of the most dramatic and violent period of the French cinema. And it's a way of showing a kind of, how do you say, heroism quotidien, uh, the daily daily, daily struggle. The, the daily heroism, the people who are, as Romain Roland said, when he gave his definition of a hero, he said, a hero is somebody who does everything he can while others don't. And they did everything they could. I mean, De Vevre, in his way, and, it's, and, and, and suddenly gets involved in uh, carrying documents even to England in a kind of crazy story, which he told me, which is one of the most incredible, I think, no screenwriters could invent that. And, uh, uh, and, and in the same way, Orange survived while making those films which, were, which are now considered as masterpieces. I mean, like Douce, like The Mariage de Chiffon, like Lettre d'Amour, some superb films in, in the period. And, and again, I have, I have a very, very moving scene in, the, in, in this film, written by, with a wonderful dialogue by my friend Jean Cosmos. Um, it's, it's a discussion between Orange and Bost, and Orange is saying something which he told, he was told, constantly telling me. I did nothing during the occupation. I blame myself because I was, I did not work in the resistance. I did not put bombs. It would have been very bad. Uh, that, <laughs> and Bost was always telling me, yes, you did things. You wrote films, and you wrote films which had great moments when in one of your films you, you, you said uh, somebody, a, a, a peasant says to a, to a countess, uh, you should have said impatience and revolt. I mean, in 1942, the word impatience and revolt were very, and the scene was cut by the censorship at that time. He says, you did that. And you, he says, we are um, story makers. And he says, but what is our use, says Orange. And he says, you know, you are, there are uh, people, uh, bread makers, uh, clothes makers, and we story makers, we give, we send light, we enlighten the life of the bread makers and of the clothes makers. And, and I think it's one of the most 
the, the beautiful statement about how essentials art is. We, we are giving light. We are sending, uh, to, 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 we are enlightening people's lives. I mean, uh, uh, this is as important as uh, uh, putting a bomb or... Uh, and um, so I wanted to make a film, and it's one of the films I'm very, very proud of. Um, it created a polemics uh, when it was released because I was accused, which was one of the, I think, one of the most, the stupidest thing ever written, of having done an anti-New Wave film. I mean, the people of the New Wave were six years old. I mean, that's, uh, I was just trying to praise the a few people who prevented the French cinema to do uh, to become uh, uh, supportive of, of Vichy and of the Nazi. There never was a film in those years where you see uh, people doing a Nazi salute. There never was a film during those years with anti-Semitic statement. There were a great number of very conservative films, very reactionary, uh, religious films made, but they were never anti-Semitic, never pro-German, and, and uh, the collaborationist press, press was furious against that. It says, no French firm is praising the Franco-German friendship. Contrary to the Italian cinema, in, you have many films where people, including some films of Rossellini, where you have people doing the, saluting the Duce. Uh, so I was, when I was working on Safe Conduct, I became very proud of, of, of those people who behave, who work bef before me. I mean, of course, there were some, some people who behaved very, very badly. Of course, of course. Of course. But much less than in, among the journalists, much less than in the French novelists. There was a tremendous number of French novelists who were anti-Semitic. Uh, tremendous number, including the favorite writer, President Mitterrand, Chardon, who published a book who was so anti-Semitic that the German head of censorship advised him not to publish him. <laughs> well, my friend Alan Riding has written a book that you may be aware of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know, right. I know, I know, and uh, I like, and I like Alan. I like very much about that. Uh, I want to come back to uh, Philippe Noiret. Uh, how did you discover him? And I, I recently rewatched the the Clockmaker, which I saw in America when it came out in 1974, and then I. Uh, with a 30-year gap, I, I watched La Vie et Rien d'autre, and I'm mm. still stupefied by his performance. Yeah. Uh, talk about Philippe. How did you find him, and, and what was what was it about him as an actor that was so extraordinary? Um, uh, before meeting him, I had met him a 
but very briefly, when I was a press agent with my friend Pierre Rissian, we worked on, we, we defended a film of Peter Yates called Murphy's War with Peter O'Toole and Philippe Noiret. So I met Philippe there, and I like him. He was incredibly admirative of Peter O'Toole. He loved Peter O'Toole. And what I liked immediately in Philippe was his generosity. He was always constantly talking about the actors he worked with, the actor he was admiring. I found him warm. I found him, um, uh, and I immediately I thought that as Bourville is dead, Bourville, I could have, that I would never dare, I would have never dared to go to meet Jean Gabin. Um, it, was, it was very intimidating for me. Um, I said, okay, I can, I can go to Philippe Noiret, who had mostly done comedies in that time. One exception was Thérèse Desqueroux, but most of his success were the comedies with the director Yves Robert or Philippe de Broca. And I met him with 30 pages. Uh, I, I gave to his agent 30 pages of uh, the draft I'd written, which in a way is rather close to the, to the final film. And, um, and a few, uh, I mean, uh, 10 days after, uh, I was asked to meet him in a restaurant. We had lunch. I remember, still remember the name of the restaurant. It was Yvonne Rue de Bassano. Uh, and he was, he loved to eat. He loved good wine. Good cigar, always a cigar. Good cigar. And it, he said to me, my agent is against that I do your, your film. But I like the screenplay. I will do your film. Which gave me the possibility. I was. It was something incredible. Uh, um, I, I had the possibility of giving a little bit of money through a producer uh, to Orange and Boss. And so we wrote the, the final screenplay. And then that producer left. I was without a producer. Ralph Baum? Was that Ralph Baum? No, 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 no. The first producer was Eugène Lépicier. And I was, uh, he left me to do another film. But I, I had a screenplay. And, and uh, with the help of Philippe, we, we uh, contacted all the French producers. And they all turned us down. And sometimes very violently, we were humiliated. I mean, I remember a producer just weighing the screenplay. It's, it's too, it's too big. <laughs> so it says goodbye. And so during, I think a year, I was to, and until I found the help of somebody who was a programmator at Gaumont called Denis Chateau, who loved the screenplay, and who says, you have, uh, I can give you eight weeks in a small circuit with Pate Gaumont theaters. With that, I went to see, without a producer still, I went to see a distributor I mean, by a strange historical coincidence, that producer was at the head of CFDC, 
which had bought the films after the war done by the Continental. <laughs> so it was in a way ahead of safe conduct. And the guy's name was Roger Shiradam. He was so short that he had like two or three phone books on his chair to be, so you could see him above his desk. And he said, yes, I can give you uh, a sum of money as a advanced distribution. So after, with that, I went again to see a producer I'd worked with many times, called Raymond Danon, which I'd produced a film of Claude Sautet, Granier de Fer, had been a press agent for many of those films. And Danon said, if you, uh, what you say is, is, is true, I will produce the film. So uh, Noiret, after that, I, one day I went to Noiret, I said, but Philippe, why did you stick up to the project during such a long time? Uh, after all, I would have understood after four or five months that you says, we tried, it's impossible, I quit. He says, why? And he looked at me very surprised and he said, I had given my word. That's Philippe Noiret. He was a man of honor. He was a gentleman. And, and he was my, my brother. Uh, I mean, I, we, could, we could relate, we could identify one with each other. I mean, uh, he was very educated. He loves art, he loves painting, he loves especially aquarelle or drawings, um, he loves uh, acting. He had worked with one of my idols, Jean Villard at the TNP, and Gérard Philippe. And uh, it was, as it says uh, in Casablanca, it was the beginning of a great friendship. I uh, just be, I want to come back just very briefly, but our, our mutual friend Lenny Borger, who had subtitled many of your films in English, yeah. uh, had remarked to me that uh, on the occasion of Philippe's death, he had observed you uh, in a restaurant in Paris, and he'd never seen anyone look as sad as he had seen you look in that particular day. Yeah, I was I was devastated. I mean, it was like um, losing one of not only one of your closest friends. I mean. Uh, but um, one of your closest relatives. I mean, I, I owe everything I did, I owe it to Philippe Noiret. Because one day he decided that he would, he would not follow his agent, he would take a risk, he would work with somebody who had not done anything. And later on, he said in his memoir that. He was a little bit suspicious of one thing, that I was such a film buff that that could become a handicap, that I could, uh, I, I would love to quote situation films and uh, in a way of talking with the director. He says the first day I was reassured. Um, Bertrand never, never mentioned any other film. He only talked about the characters. He only talked about the way 
they were uh, the characters is acting, talking, uh, reacting, and uh, uh, so he was never directing like a film buff. And he, and he said another thing, which was the greatest compliment he gave me. He says, I suddenly, in, in Bertrand, I suddenly find somebody which was close, a kind of adopted son of Jean Villard. Somebody, Jean Villard wanted to create what he calls a théâtre populaire. I mean, doing uh, uh, films which were, which would be uh, understood and loved by, I hope, many people, but while being de demanding, while never trying to, uh, to, how do you say, to please the audience, but on the opposite, to uh, waken them up, to open their mind. And he said, I mean, there was, that was something that Bertrand was sharing with Jean Villard. Just to uh, uh, finalize today's conversation, and I hope you'll come back and talk to me again, because we've only barely scratched the surface on so many subjects. Uh, La Vie Rien d'Autre, uh, to me, uh, shows so much of the greatness of Philippe, his ability to communicate without words, and you alluded to his generosity, uh, and apparently uh, Zabin Azima was somewhat intimidated by this film in the very beginning or didn't know if she could really do it and he just kind of took her in hand and, and made her comfortable so talk about that film his performance and again the generosity of, a, of an actor without an overabundant ego um, Life and Nothing But was one of our favorite films uh, Philippe and myself and uh, Philippe it's a film which is uh, where Philippe put a lot of himself in the film. I mean, he wanted to do that film for his father. I mean, he even picked up uh, things, boots, sticks, uh, 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 a picnic, uh, uh, and an necessaire de picnic uh, from his father. Um, he, he, he really went very deeply into the character of Commandant de la Plane, because I think it was somebody who was very close to him, very, very close. He was sharing the anger, the passion, the anger of de la Plane, the, his passion for the truth. And um, yes, um, I think he's tremendous in the film. And uh, when the Cannes Film Festival and Jean Jacob wanted to do a tribute to Philippe, and they told him, choose your favorite film. He picked up uh, Life and Nothing But. He picked up, uh, uh, I mean, I cannot watch that film without crying a little bit when I, when I hear him when suddenly he says to Sabine, le sénateur de Courtil a de la République une conception effarante. I have him on my arm, I still. And when I was shooting the scene, I mean, what I felt was incredible. What I felt, what he was giving me was incredible. I mean, the, the emotion 
What's up? And I've, I think the film is very, very deep and very uh, up to date. It's about the importance of the past, the importance of the souvenir, the fact that we must not forget them. Because if we forget them, the, uh, it will be terrible. We are no more hum human beings. Um, uh, uh, I mean, Philippe was saying when we were shooting the film, because we were, when we were digging the ground, we were finding bones everywhere. And he well, said, just to indicate for people that aren't aware, this is about the aftermath of the First World War. Yeah, it's, about, it's 1920, and it's, uh, it's, it was shot around Verdun, uh, the place like that. And, and, and Philippe was saying, if, if, the, the, uh, if the soil had a bigger memory than us, that we are in a bad shape. And uh, uh, I, I adore making that film with him. Nobody wanted to, that film. Nobody. It was the only film where some people made a check, wrote a check for me not to do the film. Huh. Uh, uh, and, and I did it. And, and, and uh, uh, it's really a film I'm, I'm proud of. Um, uh, uh, and, 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 and Philippe was so great because Sabine came late on the film because the first actress was Fanny Ardan and she could not do the film. So I took Sabine and so she was a bit intimidated and immediately- well, she'd already made Dimanche à la campagne. Yeah, so you had experience yeah, with her, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but I had to overcome that we wrote the film for Fanny Ardan. So the, in the first two days, I was a bit unfair to Sabine. But Philippe was great. Every time we were going into a new, uh, in a new hotel, or new, um, he was sending her um, some flowers. Uh, and he was so... So he was he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman, uh, um, and and he got and they loved working uh, with each other. And it shows in the film that you have a charisma, that you have something, and um, and even to the point that I had I had carefully planned how I would shoot a scene, and uh, I, I told that to Philippe, and he said, um, Bertrand. We want to show you what we, how we will do, how we would like to do the same with Sabine. And I had planned a kind of very beautiful tracking shot around the characters when they were to, and and when they rehearsed, they were walking very, 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 very fast. Philip was walking, was talking very, very fast, and immediately I felt that it's ten times better. That's what I thought. I said, okay, take that. But Philip, you, you walk during uh, 300 yards. And I have only, um, no, I have 60 yards of tracking shots. <laughs> so he says, don't worry, because he loved to have challenge. So we rehearse another time and he stopped twice. And those two stops was, was making the scene even better. So, uh, uh, and, and so that's, uh, that's so how- So it's it, almost like you're the same person. Yeah, 
it's, uh, it's, it's how he was working and really, really, really. Um, and I will never forget that one of the first thing he said when I went to America to do in the electric mist, uh, that he, the, he the loved, James Lee Burke novel. Uh-huh. Yeah, he loved James Lee Burke. <laughs> and he said to me, he called me, he says, Bertrand, um, try to be, to, to respect that beautiful novel. Uh-huh. And he said, um, don't forget the general, because inside you have a general with a ghost, a civil war general. Levon Helm. Levon Helm. Which gets into the middle of a criminal investigation. You have a ghost of the civil war helping a, a detective uh, solving some murder case, which is something the genius, and in fact, it's exactly the same scene, the same theme than Life and Nothing But. He said the past, as Faulkner said, the past is not, is not dead. It's not even past. And uh, well, we, might, so we could probably end this conversation on that note. <laughs> a perfect uh, a point to end it. Uh, Philippe, uh, uh, Bertrand, it's, it's been a, uh, I'm already confusing you with Philippe, so much of your work. Uh, yeah. It's been it's been a great pleasure, and there's so much that we've uh, we shared. And I do hope you'll come back, and we can talk in the future. We've only, as I said, just begun to scratch the surface uh, oh, of your okay. work. Okay, let any time. Let's do it again. That's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. And okay. Until bye. next time, I am Terence Galenter. Au revoir. Bye.